You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, for service times or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Well, good morning. Just as kind of things settle down a little bit, um, how, how many of you like a good story? Whether it's a book or whether it's a film or whether it's like on the radio or whatever, we love a good story, don't we? And the thing that I've noticed about a story is it needs a good identifiable kind of character. Even amongst all the poetic kind of descriptions where you can get these wonderful kind of intros into a book where you feel like you're actually present. But really, you still need a character in the story. I mean, for example, this film, who's seen this? Stick Man. Uh, I think it's a 2015 BBC classic, okay? It's amazing. But if they didn't personalise or characterise Stickman, it would have just been a very beautiful, like, cinemified thing of a stick floating down a river. It would have been a bit rubbish. You know, a, a narrative rises or falls on the strength of its characters and their relationships. Their, their relationships with their environment, their relationships perhaps with their circumstances, and their relationships with other characters in the story. I mean, it, who's seen this 2013 movie, All Is Lost, with Robert Redford? This is an incredible film. Like, there's nobody else in the film apart from Robert Redford. I put it on thinking, this is going to be rubbish. And it was amazing. Uh, and the whole way through, he's such a good actor that he, captivates, he draws you into the story. But even though he's the only character, you feel the presence of the other characters and his relationship to them by their absence. And you also witness his relationship with the circumstances that he finds himself in. You could argue that loneliness is the absence of relationship or isolation, but, but that it's about relationship with others by absence. That, that's what this film is all about. And then this film, classic. Who hasn't seen this film? Has anyone? Oh my word, right. Oh my goodness. I mean, can I just say for, for the recording, I am shocked. <laughs> we'll, we'll put this on next Sunday night at church or something like that. We'll, just have, we'll have a movie night. You guys need to catch up and get a life. No, I'm, I'm joking. But the thing is, this classic, even though much of the film he's spent in isolation, you still see the relationship, firstly with Wilson. Wilson! <laughs> And, and also, again, relationship by absence. You really feel the isolation and loneliness. And, and then who of you who have watched it had a dry eye at the end when he, he finally gets home and he goes home to his wife and he's, you know, the thought of her as being, oh yeah, sorry, Tracy. <laughs> Tracy's just like indicated, don't be a plot spoiler. So, but you're gonna cry. <laughs> Just to, today, we're, we're going to spend a bit of time kind of setting this up before we get into the scripture today. And, and actually what I'm going to do is kind of summarize chapter two of Philippians because we've been here for quite a while. Um, so we're going to summarize that. So I'm going to go through a, a long kind of setup process into the scripture. Uh, and then there's a really key point that I want to get to today and we, we will get to. But this narrative, this story, when you look at the Bible... Many people will say to you, it's just another religious text. But, but this text is a narrative from start to finish. 66 books 
of poetry, of prose, of wisdom, of law, of parable, of prophecy, of epistle. All of these books really are connected by this one narrative from cover to cover, a unified story that speaks of Jesus Christ. It's a narrative with a bunch of characters in it, including you. I know you're not written, we don't want you to write yourself into the characters of the Bible, but when Jesus prays for believers, he prays first for the believers that are physically with him, and then he prays for all that will follow as a result, and won't have seen him, but will receive him by faith. Jesus prayed for you. That's amazing. Relationship is at the heart of scripture. Before rites and rituals and rules, before religious acts, listen, that true religion has relationship at its core. This story in the Bible, it it begins with the relationship of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three very distinct characters, but one God. Now, there's a massive amount of theology there. I'm not going to get into that today. But this relationship that they hold between them, that's where this starts, the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect in unity, three in one. And then this relationship is reflected in created mankind, made in his image, male and female, together he created them. Uh, And as a side note, that's why we so deeply care about things like gender and marriage and sexuality. That's why we care, because we believe that man and woman reflect the image of God, and that is very important to us. He, he set us in family, in a relational unit that is reflective of that Godhead with which we find safety, security, love, nourishment, and true equality. Or at least that's what the family should look like. Created to relate rightly to each other. That's what we have been created for. But more importantly... We're created to relate rightly to the one who formed us from the dust. But as that relationship with God was broken, and if you know a little bit about your Bibles, you go back to Genesis 3, you see this perfect world kind of crumble away with an act of disobedience. Uh, And as that relationship with God is broken, so too our relationships with each other begin to tear and fracture and crumble. Each looking to their own interests, Paul has said already, in this letter that we're reading. Each gone astray like sheep, says Isaiah. Each gone their own way, looking for their own needs. And since then, since then, the family has been under sustained assault. And I'll share some revelations about that in a moment, so some revealing information, rather. Uh, But at center stage in this relational narrative is one character who, for the sake of his great love and mercy and grace would pour himself out for the sake of almost every other character in the narrative. I say almost because Jesus did not pour himself out on the cross for love and mercy of Satan and his demons. But Jesus doing this meant that this relationship restoration, the way it should have always been, 
is now coming back around. He's bringing it back to how it should be. He's restoring all things. And every bit of ground that the enemy has taken, Jesus is now advancing over. And you come into that. And this story will conclude with that same character, having restored all things, enjoying eternity in perfect relationship with with those whom he has redeemed. Isn't that great? I mean, if you've received Jesus this morning, if if you're a believer of Jesus Christ, if you believe in your heart that that God raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you are saved. And then on that day, you will find yourself counted among the redeemed, going to have an eternity perfectly in union with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and with each other. But, but what about now? What about now? We, we have this God-given framework for healthy relationships. In fact, I'm going to give you two frameworks that God has given us for the, the, the basically to be a seedbed of healthy relationships. One is community. That's a God-given thing, community, uh, and the other is family, which is a, a small representation. In fact, community comes out of family, really. Now, the charity Focus on the Family talks about the family like this. It says, the family is a masterpiece of God's creation. Marriage and parenthood reveal God's character. God put children into families so that they can experience his love and learn how to love others. That's why we're in families. But there's a narrative to every family, isn't there? Every family has a range of characters and storylines. I, I always like to think of it like when I go to a family wedding, there's always going to be a kid, probably about five or six, that is just waiting for that moment when they're allowed to slide all the way across the dance floor. Uh, and like rip up their trousers in the process. And I love that. You've, every family has its fun characters. Every ca- family has its odd characters. It's, it's weird uncle. I am that weird uncle in my family, by the way. Uh, every family also has its heartbreaks. It's difficult characters. That sometimes we'd rather not talk about it. Families can be really wonderful, should be really wonderful, but often really broken. Words that we could associate with family, lovely, warming, affirmative, secure, funny. Let's flip it a little bit. Odd, (laughs) obscure, unusual. Let's flip it a bit more. Painful, hurtful, misunderstood, estranged, absent, cold, broken, fractured, toxic. This place that that should be a safe space often becomes the opposite. And we know this, it's tragic. We just have to watch some of those horrible narratives in the news. Families break down. I'm not trying to press any buttons this morning. I'm not trying to drive for an emotional thing here. Families break down, we all know it. We've all seen it. In fact, we've probably all experienced it, if not in our own family or in our wider family, in our friends. This happens. In 2001, there were 8.2 million families with children in the UK. This is according to care.org. 23% 
were, were lone parent families. I actually thought that would be higher, but 23% were lone parent families. But listen, 90% of those lone parent families, the lone parent was a woman. It was the mother. And we know that's true. We know there are obvious reasons for that, but, but that's the, the reality. In fact, 76% of young men in England and Wales, I'm sorry I don't have stats for Scotland on this, who have been in prison, 76% have absent fathers. 76 that's huge. That's from the Prison Reform Trust. And then youth charity called ACTS says this, the consequences of a fatherless home, uh, there are consequences of a motherless home as well, but the consequences of a fatherless home, the impact on young people are thus. I'm not going to go into them in detail. One, behavioural problems. Two, difficult relationships. Three, poor academic performance. This is just a general, like it can be, it's not the rule for everyone. Four, exploitation and abuse. Five, self-esteem issues. Six, youth crime and gang violence issues. Uh, seven, young pre uh, pregnancy and promiscuity. Eight, drug use and alcohol abuse. Um, nine, mental health problems including anxiety and or depression. And ten, difficulty in gaining and reaching life opportunities. Now, I had two and a half missing fathers. I'm, I'm not trying to be comical in that. I, I had two and a half. One was absent. One was violent, uh, and one was unsure what to do with me. Uh, the, the absent one died before I could even remember his face. And now the only way that I get to see his face is by looking in the mirror, because apparently I look just like him. And I think that's a gift from God. I, I, I so value that. The second one was a violent man. The third one, just, it was too late. The damage was done. And if it wasn't for a heavenly father coming in and changing things... I would have gone down that very 10 consequence kind of path myself. In fact, I was already on it. But I can testify that restoration isn't only necessary, but it's also possible. I met Jesus. Relationship with Jesus spun that whole narrative around and redeemed what was lost and what was being corrupted and broken. At the heart of family are relationships. Some healthy and some good, some broken and gone bad, some just gone. But relationships, good or bad or absent. Relationship is also at the core of community. It's what people most long for. It's why Facebook communities and things like that just explode. It's why people want 79 million follows on Facebook. It's because they want to have value. And we feel that people noticing us and saying, yes, we approve of you. Yes, we accept you. Yes, we value you. It puts us into family of a sort. It puts us into community. And that is what people sitting lonely in their homes this morning are crying out for, but they don't know how to access that. And, and this emphasis that as a church, we are a community, a kingdom family. That is who we are, proclaimers of the wonderful restorative gospel of grace, restorers of broken walls, as I read last week, bearers of the light of Jesus Christ in these jars of clay, indwelt with grave-breaking power. The church, a foretaste of that final and perfect restored community. That is what the church is. That's what our role is in society. That's who we are. Everything we do revolves around relationship. First and foremost with Jesus Christ, but then also with each other and the world around us. 
as Paul said, and we looked at last week, to shine like stars in a dark sky, shine bright amidst all the chaos. Church should demonstrate what restored humanity looks like in community and in family. So what does all this have to do with Philippians? Very, very brief recap. I'm not going to cover everything here, but I want to show you relationship is right at the very core of everything that Paul is saying and writing. Firstly, he's, he's writing a letter to a people that he has a relationship with. Uh, and he's not just addressing the leaders and saying, I've got this special relationship just with the leaders, but he's saying to all of the church at Philippi and to the leaders, basically, this is to all of you. I have a relationship with you. I am writing because of that relationship. He, he, he says that he's thankful and prayerfully joyful because of their partnership. There's a partnership relationship there, uh, working in step with each other that's going on. It's a relationship in the gospel, which itself is relationship because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's all relational there. Paul says that it's right that he feels this way towards them and that he longs for them with the affection of Christ. Relationship, reflecting also Jesus's there. Uh, and in, ver- in chapter 2, he kind of changes tack and he says what these relationships sh- should look like in the church. Conduct yourselves in a worthy manner, he says in verse 27. Uh, stand firm. Oh, this is still chapter 1, actually. Stand firm in one spirit and strive together, suffer together with Christ. Relationship. Uh, and then he outlines a few more things. He, he shows this beautiful, poetic description of Jesus Christ and his relationship with mankind and his relationship with Father God, that he stepped down, like laying aside majesty, making himself a servant of all, dying on a cross, but being raised to glory and seated on high with the highest name, the name above all names. And then Paul goes on to say, because of this, quit your grumbling and arguing. Be good to each other. Have the same mindset as your heavenly father. Reflect him. And now, as we get to this, I told you it would be a long running. But now we get to the close of chapter 2. And it's quite a lot of verses. It's more than I normally go through. But, but he gives us a couple more examples. So Philippians 2, 19 to 30. Let's just... Uh, Read this together. Paul says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Relationship. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father relationship he has served with me in the gospel in the work of the gospel I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus my brother co-worker and fellow soldier relationship 
brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of all my needs, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. Relationship. Again, indeed he was ill but, and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. And therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you might be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves couldn't give. That's not a criticism, by the way. Do you see the weaving of relationship through this whole thing and not just these verses, but how that connects all the way back into this letter. And then the very reason that Paul is writing this letter is the relationship of a, a, a leader, an apostle to a church, which is in effect a, a reflection of a relationship between God and his people, which is the story from cover to cover of the whole narrative. You know, there's a lot in this that we're not going to get to today, but you can really see much of what Paul has already said, underlined in these two characters. Timothy, unique character. Genuine concern, not looking to his own needs. That's something that Paul implored for the Philippians. Now he gives them a great example of that. Demonstrating loyalty and endurance. He's stuck with it. And he's loyal to Paul. John Mark, if, if you know, John Mark was another disciple that actually turned back at one point. Uh, he was in ministry with Paul, but after that, Paul wouldn't take him with him because he was like, I can't trust the guy. He's not as loyal. Timothy stuck with it. He's loyal. And then we get Epaphroditus, a fellow soldier, he says, striving together, suffering for the gospel. Again, Paul's talked about that already, serving the church and serving Paul wholeheartedly. I think there's quite obvious references to family as well, aren't there, here? Uh, Timothy as a son to a father. Epaphroditus as a brother. And, and both appear to be held in high esteem with both Paul and the church. So I have three main points today. The first two will be brief, and they, they actually tie into the third and main point. So the first point will be this, the importance of character. The second will be the importance of presence. Uh, and the third will be the outworking of relationship. This is all about how we are a kingdom community. Uh, and by the way, if you're, if you're new, if you're visiting, our vision uh, as a church is nothing fancy, but it's more glorious than all the fancy things we could say. We long to see a kingdom community nourished in bonus. That's what we want to see. That's our heart kingdom community, not just church numbers, but a community of believers who relate rightly. So here we are, the importance of character. First brief point. Paul actually spent a lot of this letter pointing out issues of character. If you, if you read back this week over chapters one and two, and just note in your mind how much of that is about character, loyalty, selflessness, service. They are more than skill or status or personality or position. 
You hear that? Things like loyalty and selflessness, service, being there for one another. These are more than having all the skills in the toolkit or all the status or all the titles. Character is more important to build. Prioritize character over competence. What you can do is far less significant than who you are. To have a bucket load of skills and gifts and desires to serve, great, but without character, they are an empty vessel, an ornament. Someone with a super ability may not have suitability. Yeah? Somebody with super ability may not have suitability. Now, now, to put that into my story quickly, and this isn't because I want to make this about me, but it's a helpful reflection. I came out of Bible college, I think 15, 16 years ago? I can't remember. It was, it was a, a, quite a while ago. Now, I went to Bible college thinking, I'm going to come out of here after three years, got a degree, says I can be a pastor, go be a pastor, that's it. Boom, I'm in. And, and in my third year, one of my lecturers, who was kind of a bit, kind of, she had a real prophetic gift, and she was also really scary and really short, so a great combination. She was shorter than me. But she came up to me and she said, Tom, God's told me, you are a pastor. Stop trying to be one. And I, like, I kind of took encouragement and a bit of a bruising from that. But she was absolutely right. I, I came out thinking, well, I am a pastor, so I'll just go about pastoring. I had 15 years of nothing, 15 years of of kind of seeing some of my friends who went to college becoming pastors. I really went in there longing for it. Listen, if we long for something so much that we're going to try to shift circumstances to make it happen, it's unlikely that God is asking us into that at the moment. And the other thing that you need to know is sometimes God gives you a vision of where you're going to be long before you're going to step into those shoes. So if you're there at the minute feeling like I'm always being overlooked and I I really feel I've got this thing to bring to the church, do not force it. Let the Holy Spirit open the doors at the right time. This is so critically important. When I gave up trying to be a pastor, another very prophetic person actually went up to Jess and said, and we were running a retreat, and he said to Jess, you and Tom are pastors and you will be pastors. That is what God said to me this morning. I'd given up on this. And so he came to tell me as well, and I was like, don't be silly. Like, I, I, I'm not ready for that. I don't want to do that. That's, that's not, I'm not the right person for that. And he said, that's why you're the right person, because you don't want it. God's calling it, well not you don't want it, you know, I want to be here, I love you guys, but (laughs) I don't want to put my role or my reputation so that that grows faster than my character. Character is important. Second thing, the importance of presence. If you look at this, Paul is sending Timothy to be present and he hopes to be present with himself. This is partly why Jess and I are going to Ukraine again in a few weeks time. We're going like in a way sent by you guys because we want to be present with the people who are in affliction in that nation right now. And it's not so much about what we can take with us. We take your love, your prayers, your, your attendance comes with me and Jess as we go and we stand with them physically and that church, that is worth more than us sending them a video saying, we're with you guys, we love you, we're praying for you, to actually be there. And that's not to, we're going on your behalf, so don't feel that you have to go. 
but to be present. Epaphroditus has been present with Paul and is going back to be present with the church. Listen, gathering is fundamentally important for the church. That's why we come together on Sundays. It's why COVID was so difficult. But Christianity is not a solo deal. Uh, And church is not an individual event. The church is so much more than what we do here. Uh, Church is what you are, body of believers, Monday all the way through to Sunday and back into the next Monday and on and on. So prioritize in it together over individualism. But gathered church isn't the only way we're to be present as a church. Listen, a couple of tips, quick tips here, because I need to get into my main point. Be present when you are present. Like, put your phone down. Honestly, I, I don't, I'm not saying that as a critique. No, I am. I am saying it as a critique. Uh, and, and because I sometimes do it myself, I'm, I'm so busy, like, who's calling, who's calling? I try, even if I know I'm expecting, unless I know that there's a really serious call that I'm waiting for, I'll put my phone in my pocket and I might feel it buzzing, pinging, whatever it does. Uh, but if I'm in a meeting with somebody, I will leave it there and try and pick up with it afterwards. Like, be present with each other fully present and it's not just the mobile phone it's the tv or any other distraction that you could have give full attention and listen to each other Uh, be present when you're absent I mean pray Uh, and mean it when you say I'll pray for you (laughs) like I'm guilty of saying that a number of times and then getting to the end of the day and thinking oh my goodness I didn't do that like pray Uh, and mean it when you say that you'll pray and send encouragement to each other just takes a text or something like that. But with regard to the church, be present and involved as a family. Take time for each other when possible and appropriate. And with regard to the world, you are the church beyond these walls. So some of you, your, your peers, your neighbours, your family, you might be the only part of church they ever see. Uh, and then final point, uh, and this is where I want to really sit today the outworking of relationship. Relationship is a requirement, it's not optional. There are no, like, or there should be no Christian hermits. Relationship with God, with each other, with the world, it's not optional, it's a requirement. If you wanna be a Christian, call yourself a Christian, then your relationship with God must outwork in the way that you relate to everybody else. Love as I have loved says Jesus, or forgive as you have been forgiven, or show mercy as you have received mercy. Relationship trumps tradition and religion. We're fundamentally built for relationships. All religions, all world systems and belief systems and things would agree to some capacity that mankind, human beings, are built to relate to each other. We are built as social beings. So true religion is relational. And saying Christianity isn't a religion, and I've been guilty of this. I've said to people, oh, you know, when people have a critique of religion, I say, well, you know, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Both things, statements are true. Christianity is a religion because it's a framework by which we can meet with the living God. There is something in that. But, but it's, it's a religion that is functioning and, and holds around at its core 
relationship. Right religion, true religion, at the core, relationship is there and it cannot be separated. In fact, to grasp religion without relationship is cold and dead and worthless. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about love and then he says, if we have everything else, like if we can talk in these amazing, beautiful, heavenly tongues and if we can prophesy and if we've got knowledge that can understand all kinds of things, if we have all of that great stuff, whoopee, brilliant. But if I don't have love, it's worthless. It's like a clanging gong. It's just a big noise. Relationship is at the core of what it means to be a believer. And true relationship restores, uh, true religion, sorry, restores broken relationships. Foremost, our relationship with God has been restored by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But that impacts how we relate to one another. This is a big deal to God. Paul says that grandchildren and children of widows should learn, this is 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 4, should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. Relationship. If you want to put religion into practice properly, you put it into relationship. God himself is a father to the fatherless, a defender. Ian read this this morning. I was so overjoyed when he read that. A father to the the fatherless, a defender of widows who sets the lonely in families. And when Jesus, looking down from the cross, sees his mother heartbroken, watching her son bleed, watching his life ebb away, he looks at her, he looks at John, and he says, Mom, receive your son. Son, receive your mom. He puts the widow back into a family. That's the framework of church. That's the vision of this church. In restoration, God is creating a renewed community called the kingdom and a new family called the church. And what does this look like? What is your role in it? In this chapter of the great narrative where physical fathers and and sometimes physical mothers can be absent or ineffective or toxic, my conviction is that more than ever, we need fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, and brothers and sisters in the church. And there's a role within that, that that you can fulfill in some way. And I think this is the central deal. If I go over, I'm really sorry if you're checking out, then come back in a second. But this is so important. I think that God is calling for godly fathers and mothers, but fathers, like men, stand up and be fathers in this church and in this community. Because the consequences of your absence are detrimental to the fellowship. And I'm not saying that because I'm seeing an absence of fathers. I am so blessed, and I'll say this in a second, but I'm so blessed that I'm looking out at a number of people that I would count as spiritual fathers in this church. Mothers, fathers, sons, brothers, sisters. This isn't arbitrary, it's essential. It is a higher purpose and a higher calling. Uh, And it's not instead of physical parenthood. It's not consolation. Uh, So, Jess and I have walked with you guys for four years. We're into our fifth year now. You, You might have just noticed 
that, that we're short enough on our own and we don't have any shorter ones than us with us. I, I want to be honest, that, that hurts. It's hurt us. For, for the 16 years that we've been married, it is 16, isn't it? Good. I'll get a whole pass. It's painful. I, because of my father's situation when I was a kid, one absent, one violent, one not really there, the thing I longed for the most in life was to be a dad. Literally, my highest priority. Uh, and it never happened, in a, and it's neither fault of either of us or anything like that. It's just the way that that's been. Uh, and there were times where I was angry with God because that broke my heart. Uh, and then after I had a big whinge at God one day, and I went on a, a weekend away with my church, and somebody came up to me, and it was one of those wonderful yet bruising moments, and she said, look, I'm not sure if I want to give you this, but I, I, I really feel God's just given me this word. And I'm thinking, oh, no, because normally what happens is somebody will just come up and just slap a hand on Jess's stomach and say, I'm going to pray for you without asking anything of it. Don't do that, by the way. But she came up to me and she said, she said look, I'm not sure, but I really feel I've got this word. And the word is this. That you, God sees you as a father to many. Be that. Be a spiritual father to many. And I knew something broke in me that day in a good way. And I could give it back to God and say that, yes, Lord, I, I want to be available to be a father. So how, how are we a spiritual parent? Well, you've got to be a child first. You've got to learn how to be a child of God, to be an effective parent. It's not going to come out of books it's not going to come out of social enterprise. It's not going to come out of great human thinking and wisdom. You know, Paul destroys human wisdom and thinking and says that God's is far higher. You learn to be a spiritual parent by being a spiritual son and daughter under, firstly, Father God, who is perfect, and then under our spiritual fathers, who are, is as imperfect as our physical fathers, but that doesn't mean we pull away from them. Listen, those who don't come under authority should never be given authority. So we learn to be parents by being a child first. We know one of the Ten Commandments, honour your mother and father. It's pretty straightforward. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. That is what our spiritual mums and dads are in this room today. They're a garland of grace around our necks. So wear it well. It's hard to be what you haven't seen. But we can see it in God the perfect Father. Do not despise the Lord's discipline, the writer of Hebrews says. He disciplines those he loves. And that same one who loves and disciplines also rejoices over you with singing. And he also instructs and convicts. So, fathers, comfort, admonish, encourage with gentleness and respect. I've got scriptures here, but for time's sake, like I, I won't put them out today, but gentleness, respect, and honour each other. Listen, you belong in a family when someone commits to love you, even when you are at your most uncommitted and unlovable. That's when you know you're found in family. I'm so blessed 
to be in a church that I genuinely call family. I really think there's something very special about this church. And I'm not saying that just to kind of like put the sugar in the medicine. Like I love this church. I love that Jess and I haven't had to do anything. We've just had to sit back and be amazed and nurture and encourage what was already there. You're a welcoming church, you're a loving church, you love each other deeply, you welcome new people into the church, you reach out to them, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, church, because this is our higher purpose. Let me encourage you, but final cautionary note, healthy boundaries. Don't force or assume, it must be mutual. Don't assume that you're gonna be a dad to somebody else in this church, don't assume. It comes out of relationship, it doesn't come out of assumption. Uh, and we do have uh, safeguarding things, you know, this is important, it's not just red tape. We want everybody to be welcome and safe in this church. So, so there are sensible, healthy boundaries. And let me tell you, nobody will work with kids or youth or vulnerable adults in this church that hasn't had a number of checks, that hasn't had an amount of training, and that hasn't come under the accountability to the leadership of this church. It just doesn't happen. If that's happening outside of that framework, it is not part of Riverview Church because we care about your safety. So what, I'm gonna close this, let's stand together. I've gone on a bit too long. I'm gonna wrap this up with this. True religion restores broken relationships. This great narrative that began before creation will be continued into glorious eternity is all about the wonderful lead character and his relationship with mankind, those past and those to come. And at this brief fleeting moment in history, we're like a breath. Uh, his hand is like hovering over the book, turning the page on our chapter. And we find ourselves drawn right into this wonderful story with this opportunity for relationships as intended by the author. And most incredibly, we find that if we turn to him, if we love him, he picks up his pen and he writes our name upon his hands and he engraves his name upon our hearts. Now we belong in his family, children of God. Amen.